and welcome to the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, brought to you by Journey Dog Training and the Pandemic Puppy Raising Support Group on Facebook. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm super excited to be raising my puppy, Niffler, alongside you. And although I'm a certified dog behavior consultant and conservation detection dog trainer, I'm new to puppy raising too, so we're right in the thick of all of this together. And today we are talking to Jane Lindquist of Puppy Culture about how developmental stages and puppy culture can come together to create these really happy, healthy puppies. If you've already got a puppy in your home and, you know, they weren't raised with puppy culture, or maybe they were, we're still going to talk about some stuff that's helpful for you and ways to help our puppies grow into the nice, confident, comfortable adult dogs that we want them to be. While some of the fastest and most dramatic changes happen while your puppy is still home with the breeder, again, it's important to recognize and be prepared for things like fear periods, teething, increases in confidence, changes in energy levels, and much more. So welcome to the podcast, Jane. Why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself and the dogs you have, and um, maybe even a quick introduction to what puppy culture is and how you came about to to creating such a cool uh, program. Kayla, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. This is great. So puppy culture, uh, I have had bull terriers since, my family's had them since 1982, and I have had my own bull terriers since 1997, so a long time. And I, I always say I have two passions in life, bull terriers and agility. Mm-hmm. And anybody who knows bull terriers and agility knows that's an oxymoron because bull terriers are, <laughs> you know, when you go to agility trials, you don't see a lot of bull terriers. And there is an excellent reason for that. They're very difficult to train. So I loved my dogs and I loved doing agility, but I just found that the standard dog training uh, resources out there just were not helpful. So I dug down deep. I learned all about learning theory, about how to train dogs. I I really got deeply into it and wound up having success with my own dogs. And a lot of people kept asking me, how did you do this? How did you do this? And, And eventually I'd tell them and somebody said, you should write it in a book. And I did write it in a book and that became When Pigs Fly. When Pigs Fly is ostensibly about how to train difficult dogs but mm-hmm. really it's the best way to train any dog which is to tap into the dog's na- the dog's natural skill set which is a hunting seeking skill set like dogs mm-hmm. we bred bitability into dogs like that they'll be that we can tell them what to do but that's a very specialized skill set that we bred into dogs their natural strength is problem solving so to make a long story short that's when pigs fly in a nutshell it's about how to use problem solving skills to 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 teach dogs rather than top down sort of delivery of edicts and commands so anyway that was doing great and i was doing a lot of seminars that was 2007 i was doing a lot of seminars and getting so many requests that i really had to make a choice between my corporate career and dog training and i decided i'm going to pursue the dog training So meanwhile, my husband and I were having a litter and we were filming, doing a film version of When Pigs Fly. And we were having this litter and we said, you know, wouldn't it be fun just to film like a 20 minute film on the developmental stages in puppies? Because that's a big thing with breeders, which Mm -hmm. most of your listeners may not know. There's a book called Another Piece of the Puzzle. And by Pat Hastings and Hastings and in there she talks just just a, a chapter on the developmental periods in puppies and it's so interesting and breeders have all read it till it's dog-eared and we thought well this would be fun just to do a 20-minute video just showing what these developmental periods look like and four years later we had a five-hour film on developmental <laughs> periods because what we discovered was that that understanding developmental periods and in particular behavioral markers as opposed to temporal markers in other words understanding Mm -hmm. that there are behavioral markers for puppies passing through various developmental periods it was so profound and important to the raising of puppies that it it became our entire business. Uh, And in fact, now we have my husband, he was an airline pilot. He's retired. We both work full time on this. It's, it's become a whole community and really changed things. 
So, you know, the important thing I think for the puppy owner is that this is not just true. I mean, we documented documented it in puppy culture for the first 12 weeks of the puppy's life. And mm-hmm. when I say 12 weeks, I mean approximately during the critical socialization period, which can be anywhere from probably 10 weeks to 16 weeks, depending mm-hmm. on the breed and the puppy. But best practices, we always say 12 weeks is is really when it's over. But we documented it during that time. But it really is true throughout the dog's entire life, because dogs do have developmental stages really their whole life is is mm-hmm. divided into v- developmental s- stages. Maybe not quite as dramatic as when you know you're passing from neonatal to transitional to critical socialization, but they're there. So, and the important thing again for for puppy owners to realize is that there are these developmental periods, and they are bounded by behavioral markers. Like there are things you can look for to say, ah, you know, this is where my puppy is now, and. What you do during one behavioral, uh, excuse me, developmental period is could be detrimental in another developmental period mm-hmm. and vice versa. So understanding where you are developmentally with your puppy is super important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So why don't we start out just for um, a lot of our listeners and, you know, myself included up until I was starting to really get down into the dirt and researching getting my first puppy. um, Why don't we start out with a a brief overview of kind of what those what those stages may be. And then particularly with the stages that show up after, you know, eight or Mm -hmm. 10 weeks when Mm -hmm. some of our Mm -hmm. listeners may have puppies at Mm -hmm. home, what are some of the markers of a puppy going through those things? What do we have to, uh, Mm -hmm. what do we have to think about there? And, you know, that question is probably going to take us through the next 40 minutes. So uh, (laughs) no, uh, no pressure to try to keep it short. So, okay. I would say, let's just start with uh, and I, I, I just want to put one other thing on the table here is that people often ask, is puppy culture a breeder product or a, a breeder program or a puppy owner program? And my answer is it's a puppy program. Because I think this is part of the reason why the existing resources have not always met all the needs of Uh, of the situation because the situation is the puppy, not an owner or a breeder. So puppy culture takes you through the critical socialization period, which is usually the puppy is going to pass from one set of hands to another, but that doesn't change what the puppy should be experiencing. It's not. So, Mm -hmm. so let's, let's start with that. Now, when the puppy owner acquires the puppy is, obviously going to vary a lot, but let's just assume for the purposes of our discussion that the puppy owner is going to acquire the puppy while it's still in the critical socialization period. So I think what could be in order here is a brief talk about what the critical socialization period actually is. Is, yeah. And what I've come to believe is that And I'm going to say this, and I think some of your listeners are going to understand it, and some are not. And those of you that maybe don't understand what I'm saying, I am going to come back and explain it in plain English. That the the critical socialization period is actually the brain being wired to be predisposed to accept classical conditioning responses very quickly. At actually the cost of operant conditioning, <laughs> meaning to say that your emotional center, so so your your lizard brain and your limbic brain in a puppy are fully sort of myelinated and wired up during the critical socialization period. So the puppy is able to form classically conditioned responses with one exposure in many cases, which is not true with an adult dog. You might Mm -hmm. have to do many exposures to to get a true classically conditioned response. Also, those classically conditioned responses appear to be durable and even permanent in a way that they're not with older puppies and adult dogs. 
So what does that mean in plain English? It means that emotional learning, that learning how the puppy feels about things is extremely rapid and extremely durable. And that's really, and the brain is literally wired to be that way at this age. So during this critical socialization period, what's really important is not what we teach the puppies to do so much as how we teach the puppies to feel. And you can teach the puppies to feel certain mm -hmm. ways. Now, the other thing that's really important, and I think often overlooked, is that in the same way that a puppy can form an emotional connection about something with one or two exposures, they will in equal or probably even a greater measure form negative associations. Yeah. So what does this mean in practical terms for the puppy owner? It means that number one, you need to be out making positive associations in that critical socialization period. And we're going to talk about this, but number two, you have to be a hundred percent sure that you're making positive association. Mere exposure or flooding not only is not helpful, but actually could set your puppy back. So you always, always want to curate and control, as we say in puppy culture, every interaction your puppy has, and you want to favor quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's as with everything in dogs, you're always walking a ridge, a fine line of, oh, you know, we, we want to get the puppy out because we're, 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 the clock is ticking on that critical socialization period. We want them to meet dogs that look different, dogs that breathe different, people that look different, people that smell different, people that have hats, people that have beards. We want to get all this in. But I think that the traditional sort of laundry list of let's just expose all the puppies to this is at the time that it first was came out was a step forward in the sense of understanding that we needed to socialize puppies. But I think at this point, those laundry lists are doing a little bit of a dis disservice in many cases. So if you ever have any doubt about any interaction, any transaction to pass on it. So yes, you do. And, and, you know, I don't have the answer for you, except that it takes judgment. Every time you have to be looking at your puppy and saying, is this puppy forming? And, and again, this is where we talk about behavioral markers. Is this puppy forming a positive emotional experience in this transaction, the, in this whatever's happening. I know we're straying a little bit from developmental periods, but I'm just <laughs> going to okay. stay with this. Yeah, I'm course. just going to stay with this because it's a very mm -hmm. common thing. Okay. So how do you know as a puppy owner, whether your puppy really is in over their head? What do you, what do you look for? Right. It's what, what mm -hmm. I call the envelope. So when you look at your puppy, any challenge or new situation should be something where they can either pay attention to you or recover. They'll take food. They're not completely so terrified. They, they should be challenged, but never terrified. Okay. That, that would be the way I would describe it. And how would you know they're challenged and not terrified? A few things. One is, are they taking food? Right. So that's your parasympathetic nervous system. Are they comfortable enough to take food? If their mouth is a little bit tight, that tells you you're probably in a, an okay place because they're challenged because that that's one of the, the, the tells that the puppy has some tension, but they're not overfaced if they're taking the food a little bit tight on the mouth. You're challenging. That's okay not taking food at all, or really biting at your hand, you've probably gone too far. That's one behavioral marker I would give you as a tip that you're in the right place. Number two, do you have any behaviors that your puppy knows? Does your puppy know how to sit? Mm -hmm. Does your puppy know? Ask your puppy to do a few behaviors. Is your puppy going to be able to do them? If not, you're probably into too deep. You might want to go back to the place where your puppy can sort of interact with you and do a few operant behaviors, do a few trained behaviors. So you all, but you always want to be working and gently 
moving along the line of that envelope where they can pay attention. Because if you don't, you know, challenge them a little bit, they're not going to gain, uh, pick up any, any gains. And if, but if you flood them, you risk sensitizing them as opposed to classically conditioning a positive response. You, you risk making it worse if they have a bad experience. Totally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are things that I think you guys in the pandemic puppy uh, group and, and journey dog training have some really great resources for that. I do. I do think that that's where, you know, the guidance of, of instructors with wisdom is really good. But in general, if I had, so, you know, just to, to put it out there in this critical socialization period, again, to re Mm -hmm. recap, emotional learning is extremely rapid can happen with as little as one, one take one exposure and durable to the point of being almost permanent mm-hmm. and negative emotional experiences are also learned with the same and probably even more rapidity. So you really have to be very careful. Yes. Yeah. Now I just want to talk a little bit about the evolutionary purpose of the yeah. critical socialization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So because it's going to seg then into teenagerhood and some of the things we see that maybe are not interpreted correctly by a lot of people. Let's think about this. And I'm going to go very quickly through when the puppies are born, they have absolutely zero fear. Okay. Why? Well, because from an evolutionary point of view, Mm -hmm. nature's efficient. Fear is an expensive calorically and just metabolically very expensive emotion require. It demands a lot on the body. Neonates, their eyes are closed. Their ears are shut. Fear really doesn't it doesn't serve them. Even when their eyes first open, fear is not very helpful to puppies because who are they ever going to see? Their mother. They're in a nest. There may be some close relatives. There is no, they're never going to be exposed to danger. And frankly, even if they were, what, what are they going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah. So, like a three week old. They can't. Right. So then sometime around five weeks old, you see a, uh, the, your first true fear response. And let's think about this. Why? I, I mean, what happens at around five weeks? I'll tell you as a breeder, this is when the puppies first have their legs under them and can really move around. So that increase in mobility now means they can wander from the nest. Now they can con- they can come in contact with something that could be dangerous. So now fear does serve them. And I'm just going to say one more thing about this, that (laughs) in studies, they have found that initial fear response to vary as much as 16 days between breeds. Wow. In average, yes. With the German Shepherds being the youngest Mm -hmm. and the Cavalier King Charles Spaniels coming 16 days later on average. Um, In another study, just uh, by the way, they found that I believe it was 95% of the German shepherds they studied had a fear response at five weeks and only 5% of the Labradors did. So this just tells you how you really just have to be looking for that fear response. Okay. So then you go into what we call a curiosity period where the puppy has the maximum approach and the minimum fear. This is your really solid time to start, um, doing your emotional learning with puppies. This is when you're really going to be able to condition emotional responses the easiest during, during this, this period. Then we come into seven, eight, nine weeks, and we start getting into a second fear period. And this is the one that puppy owners are most likely to come in contact with or come up against or have custody of the puppy during this time. Now, again, I want you to think back to that five week fear period that I described and think about the significance of mobility, right? What happens really, what we see is that fear periods and developmental periods are often pegged to big jumps in mobility or mobility Mm -hmm. and facility. Mm -hmm. So the puppy again at that time is sort of reaching a new plateau of being able to run a little faster, get away a little bit more, again, come into contact with a lot of other things that could be harmful. But from an evolutionary point of view, 
The strategy of survival for that puppy is still the same. Mm -hmm. And the strategy of survival is approval of the social group because the social group is still the group that's going to save that puppy. That little puppy, that eight, nine, 10 week old puppy and almost any breed really can't fend for itself. So it really needs its aunts, its uncles, its mothers. It needs its immediate family pack to, to protect it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's starting to have fear and mistrust of novelty because now it can wander away from an evolutionary point of view. Okay. Mm -hmm. So just let's just marinate in that for a minute and talk about that fear period and how do we know the puppy is in a fear period? Mm -hmm. It's three things, okay? It's acute, meaning to say it comes on suddenly. It's fear of the familiar. And it passes. It's transitory. So it's acute fear of the familiar and it's transitory. So it's not a generalized fear, although you know, there can be a generalized fear going on, mm -hmm. but it's when you have walked by that garden gargoyle 20 times before with your puppy, and one day your puppy just stops and starts barking at it. Yeah. It's acute. It, it's one day it happens, and it's fear of the familiar. That puppy has seen that garden gargoyle 20 times. Mm-hmm. And then if it's clinically normal, it's going to pass within two or three days. You're going to mm -hmm. see that go away. You know, I've seen it with things like the oven fan coming on or one of my puppies uh, had a fear of, uh, we use a snow saucer for them to play. And she just saw it across the room one day and she barked at it like, whoa, whoa, what's that? Okay. So this is, this is when we talk about a fear period, this is what a fear period is. So what yeah. it, okay. Practically speaking as a puppy owner, what do we do? Normally when I see a fear period, I would say I count out a week from the first time I notice it. And I really ramp the challenges down. Mm -hmm. Now, your metric is always the same, Kayla. I mean, this is the thing. Your metric never changes. And your, ch your metric is the puppy should be on the edge, challenged, but not terrified, okay? The puppy should never really be scared. The puppy always should be able to overcome whatever challenge, whether it's an emotional challenge or a physical challenge you give them. But during the fear period, what this tells us is that maybe we want to even err even more on the side of caution because during these fear periods, again, the puppy's going to be even more predisposed to imprint negative experiences. So that that's the significance of a fear period. But you know, when people say, well, I see, you know, fear periods, uh, you know, there's one at five months, there's one at seven, there's one at that, da, 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 da. And I, I have not really myself, I have seen increases in generalized fear during those mm -hmm. times but i don't see them as being fear periods because they're not fear of the familiar yeah and, and they i don't think that's as transitory i feel like a lot of times exactly if you're getting a, a fear period quote unquote every six weeks yeah, i don't no, know how transitory yeah, that is that's different yeah that's different. And again, you know, <clears throat> my metric for this, and just I'm now I'm just throwing out kind of random things about fear, but it's something that comes up a lot, is that there's, there's regular fear and there's pathological fear. And in all my seminars and with my own puppies, I have two things that I want to see. I want to see that the animal can get to zero, Meaning to say that there's a place where that animal is not terrified all the time or nervous or, right? So no puppy should ever be going through something where even sitting in their kitchen, they're just sitting there shaking and terrified all the time. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's pathological, but I've seen it. You know, I've seen it not oh, in my puppies, yeah. but in other puppies. And I've certainly seen it in, in seminar dogs, you know, where it, it, it is like the, the dog can't get to a place where they don't have fear. They, you know, so that when, if you have a, that situation, a uh, consult with a veterinary behaviorist is warranted. Um, the other thing is it should now, again, assuming you're outside of a true fear period, it is something that you should 
be, it should be able to improve. In other words, as you're going along and you're doing counter conditioning and desensitization and walking along that ridge, like we talked about, it should be improving. You, you you should be able to, your puppy should be becoming more and more confident. Again, if I'm in a fear period, I'm going to give the dog a little bit of a pass, the puppy a little bit of a pass, and I'm not going to worry too much. But outside of that week when I'm going to say the puppy's in the fear period, it should be improving. I have bred one dog, only ever one, thank God, that um, started being afraid and it was late. You know, it was more like 10 weeks, 12 10 to 12 weeks. It was, she was past her fear period. I know that. So, and all of a sudden she was afraid on the front lawn and then I worked with her and then she couldn't even go down the driveway and then she couldn't get off the porch. And, you know, that dog did turn out to have a pathological fear disorder that she's doing great. I mean, she's a great pet and she's in a home and fantastic, but we did have to medically manage her for a while. So, uh, but I but I want to hasten to add that, you know, I've bred a lot of puppies and I've had one that was like that. So I do think it is an extremely rare thing. Now, and again, I don't know if some breeds might be more predisposed to this, not in my observation, but I think it's it's super rare that it's a pathological fear. Usually it's more just like normal fear that you, you either have flooded the puppy and made it worse or, you know, that you just have to work through. Okay. So we covered how to recognize a fear period, which I think is really important. We cover, we covered what the critical socialization period, which I also think is really important. So going back to that study where they looked at the German Shepherd, the Yorkshire Terrier and the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, and they found the 16 day difference in the fear periods what they hypothesized, which in my observation does kind of track, is that more neotenous breeds tend to be slower, and neotenous meaning to say puppy-like in their appearance. So your Cavalier King Charles Spaniel with the droopy ears and the short face, which is quintessentially pu puppy. I mean, they basically are puppies their whole life. That's what they look like. That's what they act like. They were very slow. Whereas the German shepherd that has more wolf-like wild canid kind of attributes with the pointy ear and the body style, they were very quick. And in fact, wild canids are one to two weeks ahead of domestic dogs generally. So when you're getting as a puppy owner, you know, if you have a German shepherd you are undoubtedly going to see this fear period much sooner than if you have a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. So I think this is why we have to be very alert to the behavioral markers for fear periods and also sort of aware that when we start seeing the puppies going downhill in terms of being more mistrustful of novelty, you're out of your critical socialization period. You, you, you may think, well, my puppy's only 11 weeks old. I still have a week. Or if your puppy's not afraid, you may think, well, my puppy's 16 weeks. Surely by now he's out of his critical socialization period. No. I mean, what you're going to see is a spike in fear somewhere in that seven to 10 week range. And you're going to see it come down. And then normally you're going to have about two more weeks where the puppy is pretty solid on novelty, and you can form quick emotional connections. And then you're going to be coming out of the critical socialization period. So my best advice, and this is practical working advice, is if you're getting a puppy, try and plan all your socialization to happen, all your big high points to happen by 12 weeks old. That's usually pretty safe. Mm -hmm. that you're going to. So, and I'm not going to go down the hole again. You know, I think you guys have done a great job of, of having a lot of lists of like, these are the kinds of things. These are the experiences we talk about in puppy culture, how to, we have a, a lot on customizing socialization experiences. Like if you're going to, if your puppy's going to have to be around horses, make sure they meet horses. If they're going to be on a boat, make sure they get on a boat. So I'm not going to get into the details of it so much as to say best practice, 
try and get your high points in by 12 weeks. If you have more time, it's gravy. If you don't, you, you know, you've crossed, you've crossed all the big ones off the list. So now we're coming out of the critical socialization period and what's happening. You know, kind of, there's a bit of a, well, let, let me put it to you this way. Everyone has an Ochmock dog at eight weeks old. And if you don't know what that is, right, it's the next obedience champion. It's going to be the next agility champ. This dog is a so perfect performance dog. You just cannot mm -hmm. believe how good this dog works for you. And, <laughs> and this puppy, this puppy, not only does this puppy work for you, but this puppy doesn't even really care about food that much. This puppy just wants to be with you and wants to do it yeah. for you. And then, and then somehow... And, and you've trained everything. It's amazing. The puppy has all these behaviors. It comes out like, like, a, like a cutting horse. When you call it from the field, it's like, boom, it turns around. It runs to you. It's just, it walks on leash. And, and then it gets to be 16 weeks old. And my <laughs> gosh, everything falls apart. Everything. So what's going on? And the reason I want to address this particular behavioral marker, which is basically what people call blowing you off. Why is the puppy all of a sudden blowing me off? And they say, well, it's teen tantrums. It's, you know, bad, you know, bad teenager and you know, <laughs> willful and blah, 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 blah. And I, I think we have to, we have to go back and again, look at what's happening at around that age. And around that age, puppies have another big jump in mobility. Their mm -hmm. growth plates have flattened. They're, I, I, I can't, I think it's like two, two thirds to three quarters of the size, the, the height. They have almost adult height. They're getting very close to adult height, although they're still going to put down a lot oh, more wow. bone and mm -hmm. grow. But they're, up until now, their growth planes were like, whoosh, like going straight up in the air. And then they get to be 16 weeks and it starts to level out. Now they are building facility faster mm -hmm. than they're building actual bone and muscle and size. And what else are they doing at 16 weeks, Kayla? Teething. Oh, chewing, yeah. <laughs> teething, right? Yeah. They're getting adult teeth in. What does that all mean? They don't need you that much anymore, okay? Mm -hmm. They are doing the shift from their number one evolutionary survival strategy being the pack to not really needing the pack as much anymore. I mean, that's what they're transitioning to. So, and, you know, in the real world, eventually maybe even leaving the pack. So... I, when I say the real world, I mean wild canids eventually leaving the pack. So they've got to test these things themselves. This is a a true, natural, and positive development. So that blowing you off is merely development. It's developing naturally what the puppy, from an evolutionary standpoint, should be doing at this point. What does this mean in practical terms? Well, it means they're going to hurt your feelings because <laughs> you thought that puppy was going to work for you for no food and want to play and their play drive was great. And, the, and now the puppy just wants food, right? Now the puppy's mm -hmm. like, if you don't feed me, I'm not paying attention. And by the way, all that other stuff we did that was fun. See ya. <laughs> but it's okay because a reinforcer, just to recap, People are often sort of confused about what a reinforcer is. They think it's something the puppy likes. And, and while that may be true, it's not always true, interestingly. A reinforcer is something that increases behavior. If the behavior's not increasing, it's not a reinforcer. Mm -hmm. So social interaction with very young puppies, usually under 12 weeks, very often is a very strong reinforcer. Mm -hmm. The puppies will do more to be rein they'll, they'll 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 do more in exchange for social interaction in puppy culture we show this with rocco at five weeks old where he's terrified of a tarp and we use just social reinforcers to work him through that mm -hmm. fear 
There is no way. I mean, I can almost think of no dog that as an adult that I could do what I did with Rocco with just social reinforcers. It would be very rare. Yeah. It would be very rare. You're going to have to use food and other kinds of reinforcers as they get older, but it's okay. It's normal. So the dog, as I say, is the customer and the customer is always right. You do not get to choose what the reinforcers are. You can build it, build up certain reinforcers, but you really on any given day do not get to choose. The dog tells you. And if Mm -hmm. the dog wants to work for food when they're 16 weeks old, that's fine. I mean, you know, don't take it personally. And by the way, they're not blowing you off. They're just, now you just need a different level of reinforcer to overcome their very natural desire to explore the world on their own. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My puppy is he's 16 and a half months old. I just had to type up (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. in another window trying to figure out exactly how old he is. And yeah, like for the first time, kibble isn't cutting it on our on our off leash walks anymore. Like we've got to bring 16 and and a half weeks. Sorry, he's six and a half months. I don't know. Oh, six and a half months. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. (laughs) Six and a half months. And um, yeah, I've been joking for the past, like, it's been a pretty market change in the past, like, week and a half or two weeks where I've been joking with my friends where I'm like, I still love him, but I don't like him right now. Uh, Yeah. It's tough. (laughs) Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. He's he's so independent and he's so excited to use his body and explore Mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's fun to watch him until, you know, you miss your baby. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, and until he uses his body to explore the world in a way that <laughs> to me seems dangerous or, um, or, you know, yesterday was the first time that I, um, I live on five acres out in rural Montana mm-hmm. and we were walking from the car to the house and he took off and disappeared for like seven minutes. Oh um, no, that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, we've done this how many times, you know, we've never had this problem. Mm-hmm. We've always just been able to walk off leash from the car to the house. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's a border collie, so I don't expect it to be a long-term thing for him. I would be a little bit more concerned were he a, a husky or a sight hound or one of those more mm-hmm. kind of traditionally rangy independent breeds. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh, Okay, we're a teenager now. We need to be leashed in between the car and the house. Oh, wow. I am so glad you said that because that is the quintessential example. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. I I do it without even thinking. Like my puppies always, <clears throat> I do as much as possible off leash with my puppies. They walk to the car off leash. I mean, mm-hmm. we do all this off leash. We try and, but you know, you know, but at the point that they can outrun me, they're on a leash. <laughs> yeah. That's it. They're on a leash. I do, you know, it's it's an interesting thing though. Off leash is really important to build that sort of trust, you yeah. know, between you and the dog and the idea that you don't that there's not a differential between the leash and the not not leash. In other words, it's not like you stay with me when you're on leash and you leave mm-hmm. when you're off leash. Yeah, yeah, it's not However, the leash that matters. <laughs> It's not the leash that matters. However, we do that in the backyard or we do it in a safely fenced in area. Another thing I just think is the greatest development is this, um, and you probably know the name of it. It's a, it's like an Airbnb, but it's fenced in yards. Oh yeah. Sniff spot. Yes. Sniff spot. Fantastic. I hope, you know, really people take advantage. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Because we have, you know, we have, we're fortunate. We have, a full acre fenced in and we have an agility yard. So, you know, we can walk more or less with our our puppies, but yeah. And some of those sniff spots are, I think like really large parcels where they're not fenced in, but it's, it's big enough that, you know, it's safe. Yeah. That's how most of ours, uh, like uh, I live, as I said, kind of out in rural Montana and we, we hike um, or walk at a fishing area every day. And it's, you know, probably a couple hundred acres and mm-hmm. there Montana's leash laws are practically non-existent unless you're in an mm-hmm. urban area. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Again, in the last week and a half, Niffler is now on a 30 foot long line when we go there, despite, you know, he's been off leash 
every other time right. you know when we go right. every day sometimes twice a day uh and the adult dog gets to be off leash but the the teenager uh he's he's in a bird chasing phase right now too that has mm -hmm. been like our big teenage change where it's like all of a sudden like um and we have a lot of meadow larks up here and mm -hmm. they are kind of these uh these prairie birds for the most part and they really like to perch on top of a tall bush in the mm -hmm. prairie and then fly really really low over the grass and then perch on another bush so they are just like perfectly oh, that's very tempting. so tempting to a dog <laughs> um so let's take a quick, um, we'll take a quick ad break and then come back. And I, I would love to talk a little bit more about teenagerhood, partially because mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of it, but also mm -hmm. I think that's something that it's the first big change most of our puppy owners are going to experience. And then why, we can close out a little bit talking about a little bit more of what puppy culture is and potentially for, you know, listeners who are fosters or looking for dogs and kind of thinking about what, um, what the advantages of that are going to be. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Yeah. All right. So we'll be right back. As a new puppy owner, I know how often we're cleaning up. While there's no replacement for management, supervision, and training, Clean Carl's has my back for the times that I slip up and Niffler has an accident. Clean Carl's pet mess products get rid of stains and odors from dog poop and cat pee and everything in between without any added scents so your house won't smell like poop or cleaning products. Plus, they're safe to use about, around both pets and kids. Next time your furry friend has an accident, try Clean Carl's Pet Mess Zapper and Remover. Use the code JOURNEY10 and get 10% off your first order. Just head over to cleancarls.com and use code JOURNEY10 at checkout. This podcast is supported by the Puppy Raising Blueprint course, which you can find at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. In this course, which is partnered between Journey Dog Training and Canine of Mine, I guide you through everything from common problem behaviors like biting and potty training to the humane hierarchy of dog training. It's always available on a self-study basis at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. So we are back, and as we're about to talk about teenagerhood, let's talk a little bit about, um, yeah, that operant and classical shift a little bit more, um, because I know that's something that, uh, yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating and such, uh, for me at least, it seems like a really helpful way to think about a lot of these developmental stages. Right. So just to recap, okay, mm -hmm. so, as and I'm going to do from the puppy owner's point of view. So you've gotten this puppy, probably it's either maybe before the fear period, the eight, eight week ish fear period, maybe it's after, maybe it's during, but it's going to be somewhere in there. You've got two, a week where you're sort of going to hold back and be very conservative. Then you've got two weeks more after that fear period, generally where you, you are going to still be in your critical socialization period and be able to get in all that, that uh, emotional learning that you want to get in then you're going to be moving into teenagerhood and then you're going to start seeing a shifting and a shift then you're going to start seeing a shift in reinforcers you're going to start seeing the puppy be less pro-social social reinforcers are going to be less important than food and tangible toy reinforcers probably food and toys will become more important than social reinforcing mm -hmm. so that's kind of the the groundwork for where where you are that's what we covered so far but what happens uh, along with that shift from emotional learning to uh, i mean excuse me social reinforcers to more tangible reinforcers the puppy's brain is reallocating so in that first part, the parts of the brain that control emotional responses were really taking up most of the bandwidth in the puppy. Now the bandwidth is reallocating. And that's really what's happening in that period, that, that couple of weeks, let's say in my puppies would be 12 to 16 weeks in between that sort of that tween age, before, mm -hmm. when they're not, not quite, babies anymore and not teenagers yet in mm -hmm. that tween the brain's flipping so now increasingly whereas in the beginning we were teaching the puppy how to feel a certain way about things now we're going to start actually teaching stepping it up and teaching more behaviors mm -hmm. 
So now is the time, again, you're going to take your puppy to puppy class. You're going to start not just walking one or two steps on leash. You're going to start teaching them how to take walks. You're going to start teaching them more sits, down, stays, all those things that, all those behaviors, now the puppy's hungry for that kind of learning. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in the beginning, and I cannot overemphasize this enough, when the puppy is still in the critical socialization period, how you teach something is much, much more important than what you teach. Mm-hmm. You really don't really need to do much true training with a <laughs> tiny baby puppy. It's more about forming emotional connections. And in puppy culture, it actually happens to be fairly training heavy for a breeder program. Most breeder yeah. programs don't include tra- training at all. But you understand it's not because we think it's important necessarily that the puppies learn these behaviors as much as that the puppies form an emotional association with the learning process, with the training process. Okay, so so whereas up until 12 weeks, we do a lot of just like meet someone here, have a cookie. You know, wow, people are great. When you're going from that 12 to 16, now you're starting to say to, hey, meet someone, maybe sit down before you, you know, get the cookie. Or maybe you can ask a little something. There's a little quid pro quo now, right? We're moving into more into rules-based learning as opposed to concepts. So when they're puppies, and again, I think this is really where puppy owners just feel like, oh my gosh, if I let my puppy get away with this, they're going to be like this. And I, I, my answer is don't worry. They don't, they don't have the mental wherewithal to understand rules. It's an (laughs) if then supposition that requires executive function that they really don't have at that age. Yeah. As they're, as they're prefrontal cortex, you know, the top part of the brain, which is also the most modern last to evolve. It's interesting. Actually, I say the brain is kind of like an archaeological dig. Totally. Because, yeah. Because you've got the lizard brain, which was the first to evolve. And then on top of it, the limbic. And then on top of that is the executive function, you know, prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. So that thing is the last thing to come online. And that comes online really very slowly over the next couple of years. But there is a big jump a big shift from the lower parts of the brain to the upper parts of the brain happening in that 12 to 16 weeks. So this is the time when you really can, you know, you're disappointed maybe because your puppy is not taking social reinforcers, but you know what? Your puppy actually can start learning some behaviors now, which is fun. Mm -hmm. Now you can really start some training like in earnest. Um, We have something called attention is the mother of all behaviors, which we truly believe is true. Totally. We normally start around that age. You know, we do things like crate, crate. Well, we, we, we teach a release, which is like crate games, L I T E, because we just do a release, but Mm -hmm. just learning some basic rules like, okay, you know, you can wait before you get something. You're going to, you know, like these kinds of things that on a puppy below 12, 14 weeks old, you're really, it's almost abusive because they really can't figure it out that well. And it doesn't matter. I mean, this is my message to you. You won't spoil them. It doesn't matter. Don't worry. Worry more about emotional learning Mm -hmm. when they're young. And then, so now, but you see now that you're in that age of, of 16 and going on up to a year old, that's a really fun time because that is the time when all, everything is new. I, I love starting young dogs in agility. What what kind of performance sports do you do? Do you do any? Or we do we do scent work. You do, oh awesome. Well yeah. our do you know Chris Mason by any chance? Mm-hmm. She, yeah. Yeah. So she has she has one of the puppies from our last litter. Mm-hmm. So we now are, have royalty in the family. <laughs> we have yeah. scent work royalty. Yeah. So uh do but doing seeing starting to work on all this during mm-hmm. this time and seeing them begin to be able to figure this out oh, such a so fun, fun time yeah such a fun time also a time 
that you're going to start to need more management, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're, you know, they now can get into real trouble. They could run off leash, you know, that, and, but I, I don't want you to ever feel anyone out there that this is regression. It's not regression. It's part of a process. You're going up, you know, it's like you're going up the scale and over the scale. It's, it's happening. It's, it's the maturation process. It's totally normal. It's fun. Yeah, no, it's been really, it's fun to see. And, you know, in so many ways, I keep, you know, joking with friends or, you know, the like, I'll say something before they've come and seen Niffler for, for the last month or so. And I'll say, be like, yeah, he's in like full 14 year old teenage boy mode. Mm-hmm. And they'll get over and start seeing him actually interacting with the world. And they're like, oh, oh, wow. Yeah, he's like, he's super physical. He acts before he thinks like, absolutely so emotional right now and not like not as much of that emotional learning but like everything that's happening he just has really big feelings about he's moving really fast um yeah and he's just so and he was already a relatively independent border collie um even at nine weeks but yeah it's it's cool to see and i'm excited um but I think it's cool to see partially because I was prepared for it and partially because I knew it was coming. And I think so many of our puppy puppy owners are just so thrown off by like that six, seven, eight months, whenever it starts showing up in their puppy, just how dramatic and and, and it can feel personal. (laughs) You know, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. It hurts um, (laughs) to watch your puppy that you used to be their sun and moon and stars. And now you are, you know, maybe at best you're like Mercury. (laughs) You know, I mean, but anybody who has kids is going to tell you it's the same thing. And literally the brain is evolving in the same way. Yeah. And the other thing that can happen, which is important for, for people to know is that what happens and actually, there's a great book. This woman wrote a book called The Teenage Brain, and she's a MIT neuroscience scientist, and she wrote sort of a plain English book for parents to negotiate, you know, life with a teenager, but from understanding the brain. We actually have not studied dog brains in particular, but by all accounts, they mature the same way that human brains do. So what happens is your emotional hot centers come online first. So they become myelinated first. They fully mature first. Then the top parts of the brain where the executive function, where the reasoning and thought and impulse control is comes on later, matures later. It gets, it's myelinated. But what's interesting is the two parts of the brain are not really connected. They're not really fully connected in human beings until some are saying your early thirties, which I always say in my seminars explains all of our first marriages. Like (laughs) we just literally like young adults, the brain is not really all there until you're in your twenties or maybe Mm -hmm. possibly even early thirties. And I've noticed the same thing in dogs. I mean, stable emotional maturity between three and four years old. They're still working it out. But here's what's really important, I think, for the puppy owner to know about this, is that in humans, there is uh, a high incidence of schizophrenia and other mental disturbances, including things like suicide, right around the time that the two halves of the brain start talking to each other. When they touch and connect, the mentally and physiologically and hormonally, they were talking about teenage hormones. It's not really that. It's that the the body literally doesn't know what's going on. And it's not Mm -hmm. just hormones. And, And again, I think it tracks with dogs. It's not hormones per se. It's that the body's like, whoa, whoa. I'm getting these feedback loop messages and I don't know what they are. And it's almost like a sensory integration problem. Mm -hmm. So we see that in dogs at around that 18 month old mark. And again, I'm just using 18 months kind of randomly um, not randomly, but from my own experience, but it's it's a generalization. I mean, generalization, but it's that, that just on the edge of social maturity. Yeah. As a, as a behavior consultant, I can almost guess 
Um, you know, and almost like, especially if I know the breed and they say, you know, yeah, like this aggression started showing up when he was about, I'm like, hang on, he's going to be Pyrenees, 24 months. He's a German shepherd, 18 months, you know, like, yeah, and and I'm almost always within, yeah, like a month or two and, you know, it's, but it's somewhere in that, like, eh, like 14 to 24 months, kind of depending on the breed, like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, and and whenever I and like honestly, whenever I see a serious behavior issue, like a big anxiety or big phobia, big aggression, mm-hmm. anything like mm-hmm. that that shows up outside of that time range, that's when I start really pushing like a veterinarian or veterinary behaviorist because right. either you know if it showed up at six months, that's a mm-hmm. big red flag for something kind of developmentally, neurologically. Who knows? Right. And if normal. it shows right. up at like six years, then it's like, okay, was there a trauma? Like, do we no have way. a tumor? Yeah. Do we have right. a broken hip? <laughs> like, you know, who knows? Um, and uh, and we're gonna do um, that's that's another episode coming up shortly on like what's normal, what's not normal, when to start looping in vets instead of just trainers. Um, so that's right. a good teaser for that. <laughs> um, that is a great, and it's it's a great. It's a great topic and something that, you know, it's sort of like that, sort of like that old saying about pornography. I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I see it. Like, I I, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know when it just doesn't feel right, but but quantifying that for somebody, yeah. Yeah. uh, That would be a great, great contribution, that podcast. Yeah, it's been one that's been, uh, usually I do, um, most of our podcasts are relatively fired from the hip. You know, it's just a conversation. And this one has been one where I've been sitting and like, it's taken me several weeks to even just start getting like through my notes and trying to figure out how to turn it into something that's going to make sense. Oh, that's really exciting. Yeah, Yeah. I noticed that you... um, you smiled a lot when I was talking about the get to zero. So I imagine that's kind of what you one of the one of the metrics that you you came up yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. So, so as we're, you know, we're kind of trying to uh, to wind down here. Um, why don't we kind of pivot a little bit to talking a little bit more about puppy culture, just because I know that's, a, you know, for our listeners who are mm-hmm. a little bit less familiar and maybe thinking about, you know, like, what is this? Mm-hmm. actually, you know, it's a, it's a puppy program. Um, I know I've got my first puppy culture dog right now. Um, and it's been really cool to see, like, there's been some really fun things to kind of see that have been different with him from other dogs that I've helped raise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and particularly kind of talking about how you use all of this amazing knowledge about these developmental stages to help make sure that puppy culture is actually a puppy program that's really, really made for the puppies. That's awesome. I do I do want to just pick up one of thing course. that I think is yeah. really key about that that 18 month age for of course. just practic- practical advice for the listeners. Uh, that's also in our breed is prone to OCD behaviors mm-hmm. and that's where we'll see that a lot. And I think in the same way that you want to kind of shield them in that um Eight week period. I think when when you start seeing around that eighteen month old period, I, I I think in a you don't want to completely shield them, but I do think that you just have to be very aware of signs of any kind of emotional psychosisy kind of thing mm-hmm. happening. And immediately react to it in the sense of counter conditioning, desensitization, moving away, taking the pressure off, just to be aware of that. Because I think that we put the fear of God into everybody about it happening without really giving them something to do. Totally. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is just like that. That's a, that's a time. For instance, our dogs uh, have not our dogs, but bull terriers can chase their tails. So that's a time where if you start seeing them doing that at all at that age you're like all right what are the antecedents what happened right before they chased their tail oh they were playing with other dogs for 45 minutes <laughs> and then they started chasing their tail maybe a half an hour is good from now on with a nap mm-hmm. and a chew project after so that's that's really what what i wanted to say definitely yeah yeah so, i know yeah with my border collie i'm definitely watching for things like light chasing or shadow chasing you know because i would absolutely i would i would much rather deal with a dog that chases motorcycles and bikes than i would have a dog that chase shadows and, and lights. Or something yeah like that. yeah exactly and um you know, I mean, I'd rather not deal with any of it. Um, but that's, that's like the big one in the breed that I'm definitely keeping a really close eye on. I guess the way I look at it is there's a genetic component, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not pre, it's not predis, 
ordained that these dogs are going to get this. But there is a point, there are points in life that where the, the animal's vulnerable, where the, the, mm -hmm. the switch can be flipped on that gene a lot more easily that, than other times. Mm -hmm. So your border collie with your OCD behavior of light chasing, I mean, maybe it's always there, but there are these sensitive times that you just have to be, uh, you always mm -hmm. have to be alert. But if you see this starting to sort of happen out of quote unquote nowhere and the puppy's 18 months old, you're like, okay, we really, we're going to back right off this and we're going to mm -hmm. be really careful and, you know. Yeah. And just being aware, and this is where being really aware of what your, your breed or breed mix may have propensities towards where, you know, I know with even my adult border collie, um, I, uh, I caught him, uh, him and my ex-boyfriend when, uh, when the border collie was like four years old. So we'd had him for about six months. Um, my boyfriend was playing with, uh, my boyfriend at the time was playing with like the reflection off his watch. Oh no. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, that was one of those things where it was just like, oh, no, 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 we're not playing this game. Like, no, yeah, he's old no. enough that, like, this this isn't a problem yet. This is not a problem we need. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and just especially knowing, and really any dog can have light chasing tendencies. I've had, you know, I've had pointers, I've had labs, I've had all sorts of clients with that at uh, Shepherds. Um, but yeah, that's just, that's not a game that we want to play. And I think that's where some of this comes in too, you know, with like tail chasing, it's probably funny at first, um, with light chasing, it's a fun no game idea. at first. Yeah. yeah for, mm -hmm. for our novice owners. So really knowing that like, yeah, these things can get really, really out of hand and are, are probably not funny, particularly if they're showing up in like teenagers. Right. Just don't be surprised if you see it. Like if you, again, mm -hmm. you think you're out of the woods and then they get to be 18 months. We could actually, I could talk about 18 months all day, but I know we don't have all day. So maybe yeah. some other time. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to bring um, you back on um, as yeah. we're uh, 18, yeah. 18 months. Is, it's, 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 it's so fascinating. You know, yeah. Yeah. So puppy culture, mm -hmm. I was describing puppy culture to someone, one of my friends who is not a dog person. I said, well, if, Benjamin Spock and Maria Montessori got married and had a baby and the baby wanted to breed dogs. Puppy culture would be the program they used <laughs> because <laughs> it, it's about on a top level, I should say on a surface level, it's a collection of protocols on puppy mm -hmm. rearing and Really, there's nothing seismic in there in the sense of like, oh my gosh, I developed the, you know, you wiggle your little finger over the puppy and then, you know, it's not like that. But what it is, is it's it's very rigor rigorously organized by developmental period. And I describe the developmental markers so you know when to do what. It's uh, it's the same thing that I always did, and it's what my mentor shared with me. However, it's just more organized and more efficient and actually much more effective in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I myself use my own workbook because it just is is remarkably difficult to keep track of all the balls in the air when you're dealing with, you know, so many different little micro markers on things. Like, when do I do this? When, and it's that... What we are always trying to do is really make breeders and puppy owners into more like behaviorists mm -hmm. in applied behavior analysis. What am I seeing? What is actually happening here? Not like the puppy's four weeks old or the puppy's eight weeks old or the puppy. Oh, I saw this. Whoa, that means I need to do that. In fact, in our workbook, we literally have when you see this, do this. When you see this, do this. There's you know whole grids laid out for yeah. it's it's really a breeder product more than a puppy owner product. Although theoretically a puppy owner could could buy it and but it it, it is more weighted towards <laughs> breeders. Now, as far as puppy owners go, puppy culture itself, the film, absolutely. In fact, puppy culture is really what I did with all the rescue dogs that came in. So I, I, I take any dog that comes into my house through what, what I do with the puppies in puppy culture. It's just maybe done a little differently, a little more measured, not quite as quickly. Um, but it is it is applicable to anybody that's getting a puppy. 
The important thing, again, is always observation skills. And that's what we're always trying to foster and empower the breeders and the puppy owners yeah. to look at look at what's going on and and react and serve the puppy the experience that the puppy needs at that time. Everyone wants to be told, listen, just here's a list, do this and you'll be fine. And it just simply isn't true. Unfortunately, the reality is you need to learn to make judgment calls. Mm-hmm. And and that's what we're about is like, what are you seeing? What's happening? Well, this is the underpinnings. Now, what do you think you should do? Maybe it's this. And I think that's the real power of the of the program is how we've emphasized the power of the breeder and the puppy owner and the observation skills. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so if people are interested, where can they find out more about puppy culture, find out more about you, keep keep up to date on all of this um, going forward? Sure. Well, we, we also do have a free puppy course. It, it's It's bringing a puppy home. It's a four-part course really on the first week you have the puppy in the house. Mm-hmm. And we do go through crate and, and uh, potty training as well. And that's at Madcap University. Now, Madcap University, we've made it free during the pandemic. Yeah, I imagine that will be coming down as people get vaccinated, maybe towards the end of the year or beginning of next, mm-hmm. once we're all back to total normal. But that is there for puppy owners. And I, I do highly recommend that you take advantage of it because it, it covers a lot of the nuts and bolts stuff that, mm-hmm. like, who, how do you carry the puppy home? I mean, like things that just yeah. are not yeah. really carried. They're just very simple stuff like that. Um, so there's that. And then puppy culture itself, we have puppyculture.com. Mm-hmm. And actually, in the UK, we have puppyculture.co.uk. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it's co.uk. But we we have a presence in Norwich, England, as well as here in the United States. So the, those would be the places you would go to learn more about puppy culture. And I highly, highly recommend joining the Puppy Culture Discussion Group. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing think tank and is also co-moderated by some of your co-moderators, yes. yeah. Zan Shelton and Rebecca Pinkston. Uh, the, the, the conversation is unbelievable through the roof quality. Just sit back and learn. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, I joined recently and uh, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, well, yeah. Thank you so much, Jane, for coming on. I learned a ton. Um, I think this is going to be a lot of, a lot of fun and really useful for our listeners and, um, to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, make sure you subscribe, review, and consider supporting the podcast by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. Um, if you join the Patreon, you can submit questions for myself and our guests to answer at the end of each episode. You can sign up for our puppy raising blueprint course at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. And make sure you join that free pandemic puppy raising support group over on Facebook. We will be in your earbuds next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs>